morning. It's good to have you all here, especially those of you who are uh, new and perhaps visiting with us for the first time or are somewhat new visitors. We invite you, I invite you to uh, join me in a Sunday school class that I have the privilege of uh, teaching in the hour that follows. Uh, you go down to the Welcome Center and that uh, classroom will be to uh, your left. Um, anyone perhaps uh, can direct you to that classroom, but I hope you'll take the time to join us. It gives us um, an opportunity to share with you a little bit about who we are, what it, what it is we believe, what it is we teach, uh, and by God's grace, how it is we strive to live our lives, uh, and also um, gives um, to me and to others the opportunity to meet some of you in a somewhat less formal setting. So. I hope that you uh, will take the time to do that. Um, There are no uh, services here this evening. Our shepherding groups will be meeting. If you don't know what a shepherding group is, um, you can call the office this week, ask to uh, speak to uh, Pastor Mullinex, and uh, he'll he'll give you the information you need, and uh, he can even, at your request, uh, plug you into uh, one of these uh, various elder groups that we call uh, shepherding groups. We are um, we have begun to consider together the unfolding of God's covenant purposes, and uh, we've begun rather slowly. It will at times we will cover a great uh, many uh, 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 much extended passages, uh, many extended passages in Scripture. But there are particular parts of God's Word that just demand that we go slowly and that we understand what we're being told because what we are told is just foundational to everything else that follows. And that is certainly true of the opening uh, chapters of uh, Genesis. I've told you how I have become persuaded that I think the beginning of sharing the gospel with anyone in this day and age has to be with, well, let me tell you what I believe. I believe that I was made by God and for God. And I think that's where you begin. And the reason I think that's where you begin is because there are so many people who don't believe that. Or perhaps there are a good number of people who believe, okay, I'll believe I was made by God. But don't understand, don't don't begin to comprehend don't begin to appreciate that what the Scripture teaches is the God by whom you were made is the God for whom you were made. And if your life is to be what God intends for your life to be, if your life is to be the blessed life that God intends for His people, then you must understand both those truths and act upon them. That you were made by God and that you were made for God. Now, we've seen all of that over the last few weeks, and this morning we're going to come to Genesis chapter 3, and um, I will make the observation that uh, what we are about to look at here, and we're going to consider um, uh, only the uh, first five verses this morning, uh, because this, this explains Genesis chapter 3 explains the problem and gives the solution. 
And if you skip Genesis 3, if you don't have Genesis 3 firmly in mind, then much of the rest of what Scripture teaches just doesn't quite line up. I mean, you come to Paul's great theology in the book of Romans, and you have Paul in Romans 5 making these these staggering comparisons between uh, the, the man who acted in disobedience and the man who acted in obedience. Well, if, if you don't understand Genesis 3, if you haven't got a handle on Genesis 3, there's no way to read Romans 5 and walk away from Romans 5 going, I got it. I know what I'm being told here. So look with me, if you would, this morning. Uh, at Romans chapter 3, let me read for you verses 1 through 5. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Let me just say parenthetically, that word crafty is a very complex word. Um, and I really can't come up with another word to replace it. Uh, what makes me cringe a little bit is the word crafty for us in English carries, that word carries basically negative overtones. And I'm not sure that at this point we're supposed to have a lot of negative overtones towards the serpent. But I, 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 the bottom line for me is I think what we're being told in these opening words is that snakes were looked upon with much greater esteem than you and me look upon snakes. You know, I mean, we look upon a snake and we go the other way. Uh, apparently in the uh, pre-fallen world, that isn't the way it was. I know there are those of you who love snakes. And let's face it, you're strange. You know, you know, you know it's, just, it's just obviously true. Um, and the reaction of normal people to a snake uh, is just not positive. You know, it's, it's not a good thing, you know, no matter what some may think. So, and, and I think that's the point here. The serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Let's pray together. Father, this uh, passage of Scripture, it is very uh, challenging to us. There are many things here that um, we do not fully understand or comprehend. Um, and you know that. So by the work of your Holy Spirit in our hearts and in our minds, help us, Father, to take hold of that which you would have us uh, to understand, to comprehend, to, to apply to our circumstances, that we might live in the light of your gospel, that we might live lives, that we might live those lives you created us to live. 
uh, as image bearers of you, lives lived for the sake of your glory and your honor and your praise, life lived uh, for the good and for the blessing of others. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Things are simply not the way that they should be. And we all know that. Got disaster, you've got disease, you've got dysfunctional families, you've got death, you've got the despairing personal experience of, of knowing the right thing to say or do and then deliberately choosing to say or do what you know full well is wrong. All of those things. We, we know we are touched by all of the life, things, this world, it's just not the way that it should be. Immanuel Kant, 19th century philosopher, in his despair he wrote, out of the crooked timber of humanity no straight thing was ever made. Wow. Out of the crooked timber of humanity, no straight thing was ever made. Albert Einstein, 20th century physicist. Einstein wrote, the real problem is in the hearts of, and minds of men. It's not a problem of physics, but of ethics. It's easier to denature plutonium, at least for some people it is. It's easier to denature plutonium than to denature evil from the spirit of man. Wow. Things are not the way they should be. And here in Genesis chapter 3, we have the answer to the question, why is that? Why are things not the way that they should be? The answer is here in Genesis 3 and here in Genesis chapter 3, we find the answer. We, we find the solution to our predicament. And here in Genesis 3, we will discover that Kant and Einstein are both right and they're both wrong. They're both right. They're both right because they spoke of the world they knew. And they knew their world correctly. And so they spoke the way they did. Out of the crooked timber of humanity, no straight thing can be made. It's easier to denature plutonium than to denature evil from the spirit of man. They spoke of the world they knew. And what they said in relationship to the world that they knew was right. They were wrong because neither of them knew Jesus. Nor did they understand the gospel, which for the first time will be set before us here in Genesis chapter 3. They knew, they, neither one of them knew the one who makes straight that which is crooked and who denatures evil from the spirit of man by planting within man, within woman, a new heart, a new spirit given by Him. Now, 
As we have seen, Genesis 1 and 2 teaches us that God created all things good. As a matter of fact, by the time you get to the end of Genesis chapter 1, we're told that God had created all things very good. But now, now you're going to have to stick with me for the next few minutes. This is going to be a little wild here. Now, in Genesis chapter 3, we find one of God's created beings rebelling against him. One of God's created beings. One. I'm not talking about Adam or Eve. Not at this point. I'm talking about the serpent. Here in Genesis chapter 3, we find one as I hope to show you in Scripture, we find one of the angels that God had created is an angel who has rebelled against the Lord and now in the form of a serpent shows up in the garden. The first rebellious creature in Genesis chapter 3 is neither Eve nor Adam. The first rebellious creature in Genesis chapter 3 is this serpent and the one who possesses this serpent. Now, you can turn to these two scriptures if you want, or you can just listen this morning and check these out for yourself later. I'll give you the references. It's going to be Ezekiel chapter 28. And then it's going to be Isaiah chapter 14, Ezekiel 28, and then Isaiah 14. And I'm going to look at these very rapidly, so I don't want to frustrate you. So you may want to just listen and not try to keep up here. But in Ezekiel chapters 25 through 32, Ezekiel, one of the the prophets living during the time of the Babylonian captivity, in Ezekiel 25 through 32, we have a series of judgments pronounced by God against the nations who had troubled Jerusalem. In Ezekiel 28 in particular, the Lord speaks against Tyre, which is a coastal city noted for its, its wealth and its arrogance. That's really a strange passage. In Ezekiel 28, 1, the Lord speaks to the prince of Tyre, who we're told, if you can take note in verse 2, we're told thinks of himself as being a god. But in verse 11, the Lord goes from speaking to the Lord, to the prince of Tyre, to addressing the one he calls the king of Tyre. And it would appear at this point that the Lord is addressing the power behind the throne. And that power is Satan. Just listen to this. What are we told about this, this being to whom the Lord begins to speak in verse 11 of Ezekiel chapter 28? Listen to this. In Ezekiel 28:12, we're told that this being was full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. Full of wisdom, perfect in beauty. In verse 13, we're told that this being to whom the Lord now speaks, that he was in Eden. That he was in the garden of God. In verses 14 and 16, he's called 
a cherub. We sang this morning, holy, holy, holy. We talked about seraphim and cherubim falling down before him. In Ezekiel 28, verses 14 and 16, this one to whom the Lord is speaking is called a guardian cherub. In verse 15, we learn that he was created blameless until unrighteousness was found in him. That is, until, as we're told in verse 17, he became proud and corrupt. Now, in a similar manner, in Isaiah 14, verses 12 through 14, in Isaiah 14, verses 12 through 14, the Lord appears to be speaking to this same being. Because in Isaiah 14, verses 13 and 14, we hear this being boast in the following manner. Listen, this is what he says. I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne (coughs) on high. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. John Milton, in his epic poem, Paradise Lost, reflecting upon these and other scriptures, He puts into the mouth of this fallen angel, of this fallen guardian cherub, He puts into the mouth of Satan these words, "'Tis better to reign in hell than to serve in heaven." That's the first rebellious creature in Genesis chapter 3. Do I understand that? No. <laughs> Who is, how does this, why did he do that? I mean, don't you want to slap him around a little bit? I mean, what is he thinking? But as we follow the history that is unfolded for us in Scripture, that appears to be the sequence of events here. There is an angel that rebels against God, is cast out of heaven, and now shows up in the garden. And Scripture offers us no further explanation than to simply give us those facts. And for us to go much beyond that is speculative at best. And I love to speculate with the best of them but not from the pulpit. I won't do that from the pulpit. All I can tell you is this is what the Word of God teaches. Here in Genesis 3, we find a serpent. A serpent who throughout the rest of Scripture, a serpent who throughout the rest of Scripture is equated with Satan. And Satan is this fallen angel, this rebellious guardian cherub who has in his arrogance and pride turned against the Lord, been cast out of heaven, and now he shows up in the garden and we find him here beginning a conversation with Eve, trying to convince Eve that God was not to be trusted. So, Why? (laughs) I don't know why I raise questions I can't answer. Because I think they're on your mind. So why is Eve carrying on a conversation with a snake? 
Come on, people. You know, we claim to believe in the historicity of Scripture. I believe in the historicity of Scripture with all of my heart and soul and strength and mind. So, are you telling me that whenever you read your way through Genesis and you come to Genesis chapter 3 and you find Eve carrying on a conversation with the snake, are you telling me you never pause and go, what? Why is this woman carrying on a conversation with a snake? I don't know. Now, how good an answer is that? I don't know. It probably tells us something. It probably tells us that there's something more about the pre-fallen world than we understand. It has to have something to do with the situation that existed in the world prior to the fall, and maybe it's the kind of, you know, maybe after the fall, my dog and I can have an intelligent conversation. I don't know. I mean, after, after the Lord returns and we're in glory, I mean, not after the fall. No, no, no. I mean, my dog and I, you know, I, have, I talk to her and she drools. You know, that, that, that's all I get in return, you know. That's all I get. Maybe a lick on the face every now and then, but n- nothing more, you know. Maybe in the world to come, we'll talk. I, I don't know. You know, I, I just, I, I don't know how all that works, you know. But here is Eve, here is the snake, and what we need to do now is focus on Satan's questions. Adam and Eve lived in the garden long enough. I don't know how long, but I think it's longer than most of us sometimes assume. They had to have lived in the garden long enough for Adam for God to have gathered all the animals together to Adam and for Adam to name them, I mean, you know, it had to take a little bit of time. Uh, for Adam to go to sleep, for God to form Eve, for the Lord to join them together as man and wife, for, for Eve to understand that they were not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, how long a period of time that was, Scripture doesn't tell us. But concerning that, the, the not eating of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, it's about this tree that Satan is speaking in verse 1. And I want you to follow what Satan says here. Because his tactics have not changed. Same tactics. Look at what he says in verse 1. He says to Eve, You have to love the way this starts. Did God actually say? I mean, is that slick or what? I mean, that's that's pretty good technique right there. Did God actually say? I mean, who can believe that he would say such a thing? But I'm I'm just asking. I just want to know. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now, look at that statement. You shall not eat of any tree in the garden. Is that what God said? Well, you know, (laughs) actually what God's, look at Genesis 2.16. What God said in Genesis 2.16 was that they could eat from every tree in the garden. You can eat from every tree in the garden, but the one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God generously gave to Adam every tree in the garden from which to eat. But here in Genesis 3, Satan takes God's one prohibition 
God's one prohibition concerning the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and uses that prohibition to suggest to Eve that God is both a liar and a cheat. That's what he's doing. Did God actually say, you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? Well, yeah, I mean, he did. He, he said there was one tree, at least, from which we were not to eat fruit, and that was the, the tree of the knowledge of, of good and evil. But, but Satan, Satan makes his statement as negatively as he can possibly make it. It's still technically true if you break down the meaning of his question, but it is stated as negatively. He doesn't say, so God told you you could eat from every tree in the garden, but one. He says, was there, you know, did God tell you you couldn't eat from any tree in the garden? Yeah, one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You, you see what's going on there? He, he takes God's he takes God's words and makes them as negative as he possibly can. And I want you to see something else. Look back at Genesis 2.16. In Genesis 2.16, this is really critical. Um, I don't want to get into this at length, but you need to understand this. One of the great historical criticisms of the first five books of the Old Testament is to suggest that these are various documents from widely separated periods of time that were woven together, and they are usually referred to as the JEP and D documents. Now, you don't need to worry about what all of that means, but one of the great distinctions is supposed to be the use of the name of God. For example, as we've already noted in Genesis 1, it's God. It's Elohim. Then in Genesis 2, when the focus is on the creation of man, it is, it is Yahweh Elohim. It is the Lord God. And that's supposed, but critics suggest, see, one person wrote this passage and used only the name Elohim, and then the other person wrote this passage and used the name Yahweh Elohim, and so obviously these are two different documents as, as, as if you always use the same name, you know, in, in regards to the same person. I mean, you can sometimes have a variety of names. But here's what I want you to notice. In Genesis 2.16, it is the Lord God. It is Yahweh Elohim. It is the Lord God who spoke to Adam. Now, why am I telling you that? Look in Genesis 3. In Genesis 3, Satan speaks of a God. Satan never makes reference to Yahweh. Yahweh is the personal name of God known to those who are to be His people, known to those people to whom He is to be their Lord, their Yahweh. But when Satan brings up this whole conversation about what Yahweh has said, he never uses that personal name. You know, it's like, you know, instead of saying, well, what did Render say? You know, you're going to say... <clears throat> What did the pastor say? You know, I mean, you know, I, 
you know, I, I like being called pastor, but my name's Render. You know, ask my mother why. I, I can't explain to you how you get a verb for your name, but uh, it, it happens that way. So um, but you, you can ask her about that. Uh, but you see what the difference, I mean, there's a difference in there. That there's a difference of intimacy in the using of those particular terms. And so Satan, when he speaks here, he speaks only about God. And Satan is implying that this impersonal deity, this God, is unreasonably re- trying to restrict Adam and Eve's enjoyment of the garden. That is what Satan always wants us to believe. That is the bottom line to all temptation. The bottom line to all temptation is to convince you that God is unreasonable, that God is unnecessarily restrictive, that God is trying to cheat you out of having, a truly, of having the truly good things of life. That's the bottom line. And, and you know, in most cases... You know, in, in, in godly homes, children in regards to parents? You know, it's not always true, but sometimes, you know, a, a child resents what their parent has told them because the kid wants to do what the kid wants to do. We're, we're just big kids. We're just big kids. It's exactly the same pattern except that the parent with which we are dealing is perfect. And his ideas are never mistaken. He wants us to believe that God is unreasonable, unnecessarily restrictive. He's trying to cheat us. One of the turning points in my life was understanding that God's Ten Commandments are a declaration of ten great freedoms. You live like this, God says, and you'll be free to enjoy the best I have to offer. Now think about that in relationship to Adam and Eve. Obey me, do not eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and you can eat from the tree of life. See, I don't think eating from the tree of life was a one-time deal. I think eating from the tree of life, there's no indication that that was just a one-time thing. They were free to eat from the tree of life. The only tree from which they're not free to eat is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You know, obey me, believe me, don't eat that fruit, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And you can eat from the tree of life, that sacramental fruit that promises you the gift of life unending. You can eat from that tree if you will but believe that all I want for you is the very best. Here's the tree of life. Enjoy Just don't eat the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Simple, isn't it? (laughs) Eve in verses 2 and 3 of Genesis 3, she appears to be buying the serpent's argument. Listen to what she says. She, She correctly tells the serpent, God told us that we could eat the fruit of the tree, uh, the fruit of the trees of the garden, except for the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Except for the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Look back at Genesis 2 9. 
what is in the, what's in the midst of the garden? In the midst of the garden, there are two trees. There's the tree of life and there's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Eve never mentions the tree of life. Eve's, Eve's whole focus has now become on the tree in the middle of the garden. Which tree? The tree whose fruit we're not allowed to eat. Tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For Eve, it now it's of central importance. That tree is fruit she could not eat. Look at verse, look at verse 3. Eve tells the serpent, she tells the serpent, that they were neither to eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, nor were they to touch it. Now, I have to admit, not, not touching that tree was probably a good idea. But I also want you to take note of the fact that nowhere in Genesis 2 does the Lord forbid them to touch the tree. I, I, just, I just want you to know that Eve adds that line. She adds that line. Now, um, <laughs> Remember what I said about speculating? Well, so forgive the next 30 seconds, all right? Just forgive this. If you want to blank this out from the recording, you can. But um, to me, it's like Eve is pouting. She's like a little child who's been told she can't have any cookies before supper, who now complains to her playmate that not only won't mommy let me have a cookie, she won't even let me touch the cookie jar. I mean, can't you hear a kid say that? Can't you? Yeah, I see mothers grinning all over themselves. That's what it sounds like to me. Eve understands that God has warned that if they eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they will die. She knows that. Look look at Genesis 3, verses 4 and 5. Satan tells her, no, you won't. God is a liar. If you eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you won't die. God's just trying to cheat you. He doesn't want you to eat that fruit because He knows that the day you eat that fruit, you will be like Him. Knowing good and evil. You will be God. You will make up your own rules. You will decide for yourself what is right and what is wrong. And man, we love that. We love that idea. Be you believers, unbelievers? You know, there's some unbelievers who insist upon the fact that they don't think there's any such thing as right or wrong. Or there's no such thing as good or evil. Of course, that's ridiculous. Nobody can live that way. We, we have to live with rules and with laws. But now the, po- the point has become that we'll make the rules. We'll make the laws. We don't have to look to a lawgiver. We don't have to look to a creator to, to show us what we can and cannot do. We'll make those decisions. And then it becomes very personal. How I choose to live my life is my business. Nothing new under the sun. Book of Judges, there was no king in Israel. And everybody did what? Everybody did what was right in their own eyes. Nothing new under the sun. 
How I choose to live my life, it's my business. As long as my fist stops short of your nose, I'll decide for myself what is right and wrong, what is good or evil. And furthermore, (laughs) furthermore, how I choose to live is none of your business. Nothing to do with you. And it doesn't matter to anyone but me. How I choose to live doesn't matter to anyone but me. And of course, that's just absolutely ridiculous. That's about as dumb an idea as I can possibly imagine. How I choose to live my life impacts my wife and children. It impacts you. How you choose to live your life impacts those around you. When Paul lists all the things that he suffered for the cause of Christ in 2 Corinthians 11, and it's just an incredible list of physical tortures, he comes to the end of that list and he says, above all else is my anxiety and concern for the churches. For those people. Nobody lives unto themselves. Nobody dies unto themselves. And yet how many people, including professing believers, think that what they do in private is of no public importance? What we do in the privacy of our home is of no public concern or importance. That's absurd. What you do in private is displeasing to the one you call Lord, to the one you claim to be your Creator and your Savior and your King, then those things you do in private that you know full well displease Him will eventually eat you alive and inevitably devastate the lives of those you love and those you claim to love. What Eve and Adam are about to do here in Genesis 3 remain a private matter, their sin will be found out and it will prove devastating to all of us and to all of creation. Okay, let me end by pointing you to Psalm 32. Look at Psalm 32. Next week we're going to talk about the consequences of the sin here of of Eve and of Adam. And then... In preparation for our celebration next week of the Lord's Supper, we will focus upon the stunning, the amazing love and grace and mercy of God exhibited here in Genesis chapter 3. Here's what I want you to know. Here's where I want, I want to leave you this morning. That love, grace, and mercy that we'll look at in detail next week, that love, grace, and mercy can be yours today. Psalm 32, David, a man just like us, what does he know? He knows. A man who sinned greatly, who tried to sin greatly in private. Until Nathan the prophet stood before him and said, you are the man. David, a man just like us, he knows. He knows that only those are blessed, only those are truly happy, whose transgressions have been forgiven, whose sins have been covered, that is literally whose sins have been atoned for, that is paid for by being covered, by being washed away by the blood of the perfect and spotless Lamb of God. Only those are blessed, are truly happy, who can stand openly before the Lord. 
knowing their sins forgiven, paid for by the death of the sinless sin bearer. David knows what it is to be tormented by sins, private sins, not honestly and openly confessed and repented of before the Lord. Listen, look at verses 3 and 4. These are two of the most agonizing verses for me in all of Scripture. Because I just hate the fact that I've been here too often. David writes, when I kept silent... My bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. Day and night your hand was heavy upon me. And my strength was dried up by the heat of summer. Well, putting all of that together. Look at verse 10. Putting all of that together, David tells us in verse 10 that the sorrows of the wicked are many, but those who trust the Lord who are honest before Him, who confess and repent of their rebellious attitudes and words and behavior, be they either public or private, for them, for, for those who, who, who claim His sacrifice as payment for their transgressions, they are blessed. They are assured by the Lord that His steadfast love will surround them. But they have to confess. They have to repent. They have to turn again, turn away once more and turn again unto the Lord. I know that you are a people just the same as me. And there have certainly been those times in my life when what I did in private I thought was of no importance to anyone but me. But let me tell you what. Let me tell you how I know I'm loved of the Lord. He wouldn't let me be. My mind would return to some of those things again and again and again and again until finally, finally, finally on many different occasions, finally there came that moment when I would say, okay, let me get a yellow pad. Let me write these things down. Let me share these things with my wife. Let me deal openly and publicly with some other brother in the Lord. Let, let me confess these things and be rid of these things. And be rid of the weight of that agony of knowing that I could not come and stand boldly before my God. We're all sinners. The only difference is whether or not you recognize 
that by grace through faith in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, you can be forgiven. But that forgiveness is not simply a one-time thing. Well, I know, I know. When you come to the Lord, genuinely turn to the Lord, all your sins are forgiven. Past, present, and future. And that's a wonderful thing because what that means is not, okay, those future sins, I don't have to worry about them, they're under the blood. <laughs> Got that taken care of, thank God, let's get on with it. It doesn't work that way. That, that future forgiveness of sin, that's in place so that you can know that I can turn to God I can confess. I can repent. He will forgive me. He will clean the slate once more. And I can start again. Why would you choose to live in the shadows? Why would you choose to live in the darkness? You say, well, I'd be ashamed. There's nobody here who's going to be ashamed. Well... I'm, I'm sure there's somebody here that would be ashamed of you because we're a sinful people. And some of us, including me at times, are just going to react idiotically. But this body of people, this is a body of sinners saved by grace. And we know a lot about each other. And you know a lot about me. And some of you still like me. And it goes the other way as well. All the time. This is a house of healing. This is not a house of condemnation. This is a place of healing. If you will confess, if you will repent, And you will be forgiven. The slate will be wiped clean. And then Paul says you can come and stand boldly in His presence because there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I beg you, don't believe the serpent's lies. God is neither a liar nor a cheat. All God wants for you is the very best. Let's pray. Father, teach us these truths. Emblazon them upon our hearts and seal them upon our minds. May we be Your people. May You be our God. Forgive us when we allow the evil one to persuade us that You can't really be trusted and that You really may be trying to cheat us. Oh God, may we understand that You have come to set us free that we might live the best of all possible lives. In this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.